the best players are often the worst coaches because the players that are incredibly good at what they do never had to really think about how they get that good. Yeah, do you have like an example of that? So it's really hard if you see someone trying something, you're not quite sure if it's the right thing to be doing. Rather than saying, don't do that, or I wouldn't do it that way, it's kind of going, well, help me understand. Especially in go-to-market orgs where you've been a really good seller, it's really hard to sit back and allow people to fail in order to improve. So what are then the, the elements that you are playing with to set up that structure? If I were in a position again where I was kind of first leader into a new location, those are the two things, being thoughtful about a landing team and then also... Today, we are very lucky to have Emily Pander on the pod. With Emily, I had a super interesting conversation about having an intentional culture that drive performance. Because I find it very, very hard to meet people that can actually describe it very tactically on how to build and manage the culture. However, I felt like this was second nature to Emily. To actually quote her, this isn't the squishy stuff like ping pong tables and freebies. This is well-designed incentives plans, transparent communication, and especially in tough times, and consistently demonstrating the values you expect to see in your teams. So in this episode of the podcast, you learn how Emily goes about building and managing an intentional culture, Emily's leadership style, and a couple of mistakes she has made while leading the teams at LinkedIn and at Front. So please enjoy my conversation with Emily. Well, Emily, first, I really want to thank you for making the time, for coming on the show. Um, let's actually dive in immediately in introducing yourself. Like, who is Emily Pounder? Can you introduce yourself? And while you edit, also explain what you're doing now at, at Front? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm Emily. I am from the States. I've been living in Dublin for about six years now. So I just went through my citizenship ceremony. I'm officially a dual citizen as of a month ago. Very exciting. And, and professionally, my career kicked off and, and started off in the HR and talent acquisition space. And so I spent um, the, the early part of my career really kind of focused on employee engagement, building teams, but through the hiring lens. And then I had um, one of those amazing opportunities you can't pass up. And I started selling at LinkedIn uh, back in 2015. And so that transition took me into tech and took me into tech sales. I've always had the goal to go live and work somewhere else in the world and had the opportunity to move to Dublin with LinkedIn. So I took that move back in 2018 and have been just completely immersed in and obsessed with the cultural differences um, that you get to experience working, especially in a place like Dublin, where it's a bit of a hub um, for the international tech community. So that's the short version of kind of who I am and how I've ended up here. Um, and about a year and a half ago, I left LinkedIn to join Front, and I'm leading the go-to-market strategy and teams for our EMEA efforts now. Interesting. What's the biggest cultural shock you have since you're now in Ireland? Do you know, I, the, of all the moves of my life, the hardest one, I'm from a 500-person farm town in Texas, and I moved to Chicago for college. That was the hardest of all of them. You expect everything to be the same, but it's just a little bit different. Everything's like 5% off of what you expect. So things like how the bin system works are super confusing, or like when someone's like, well, sure, yeah, well, yeah, that means like you're absolutely not going to do what they just said they would do. And so it's those small wrinkles of understanding the nuance of even language to be able to follow the conversation and kind of understand the context of what's happening. That, that would make sense. How about also being in contact with other markets in the EMEA region? Because uh, I think you're leading the, the team now at France for the EMEA region, right? I am, yeah. Uh, redefining our ICP right now as well, but focus primarily on English-speaking countries because our team is primarily English-speaking. Um, the first role I had in Europe, my team, I had 10 reps from nine nationalities on one team. 
Um, and my two Italians, one was Northern Italy, one was Southern Italy. So they would say they were from different countries altogether. So <laughs> I think that experience, and I had an opportunity managing SDs at LinkedIn where I covered every market bar the UK. So every market we covered out of LinkedIn, I was leading those teams, um, managing the leads coming in. So the um, understanding like the differences of like how people perceive time and how important that is, what is punctuality, like what is rapport building on a call, like these are so different in kind of culture by culture. And I think that experience I will always treasure of having that exposure to so many different unique cultures and getting to learn um, from so many just amazing people um, about kind of how they perceive things and, and how things are interpreted and um, just the different kind of benefits and values and all sorts of things you get from those mixes of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I would agree with that. Uh, but that's actually interesting. P please introduce also a little bit more of the, the challenge that you recently faced at the front because you started there a couple of years ago with a certain mission. Like, can you can you kind of uh, briefly explain what that was? Absolutely. So uh, when I started at Front, we Front was had expanded to Dublin. Was the the crux of um, why I hired and, and why I joined the team. Um, we are an American company with French founders, so we've been around for about ten years, headquartered in San Francisco. Uh, in 2018, 2019, we opened up an office in Paris. Um, it's primarily an engineering office with some go-to-market motion there. And as we were going into the expansion mode, um, we decided we needed an office in Dublin to really take advantage of um, the talent pool here um, because it is kind of where you're able to pull people from all over Europe to come and, and work and represent your company. So when, when I started at Front, um, we were still in that, it was before the tech bubble had its um, moment. It's a, I don't know if you want to call it a burst or whatever happened in, in the last year or so, but we were still in the focus on growth at all costs. And that was what was the measure of success for an organization. We're a Series D pre-IPO company. So we did our last round of funding um, in June of 2022. Um, that put us at a $1.7 billion valuation. So one of a you know handful of unicorn value companies, um, one of only, I think, 10 or 11 with a female founder. So it's like very exciting stuff. But very quickly, we decided to open up Dublin. We had hired ahead of needs. So we'd started, like our first hire was an SD. I was here about six months after our first hire started. Um, so there were no leaders in Dublin at that point. Um, we hired the entire team. And then myself and another manager came in um, at the same time on the same day, which was such a blessing. And so we had to build an office, build a culture. But like our first week, we were in Paris with the team there. And our second week, we were looking at office spaces in Dublin. So it really was a straight into it. Um, and we were starting from scratch on, you know, how do you how do you build a culture and how do you build an office when we're physically, I keep saying we're literally and figuratively on an island over here. Like we're so disconnected from headquarters in San Francisco. We don't have any hours of business overlap. Um, so how do we make sure that we're being connected to the overall organization? Um, and we're able to represent kind of the European point of view and we're able to get the support we need, but be able to add value to the company at the same time. Maybe to start off with the statement that you said, like we had to grow at all costs. And then all of a sudden you had to shift because of the economic situation. What of impact did it have like on, on you guys? I mean, it was a huge impact. And I think um, every company in our situation kind of went through the same thing. I think most pre-IPO companies had to kind of take the medicine and understand the shift was from, you know, growth was the measure of success. That was what would build your valuation. And that moved to sustainable growth and moved to the focus on profitability, which means the idea of we're gonna double the size of the team um, in the next 12 months, like just doesn't make sense anymore. So it's it's looking at slower, more sustainable growth now. And so we've, we've gone through layoffs, we've gone through resizing, and we have retooled the team to be more sustainable in how we're looking at growth overall. We Smart frugal is the term that we use. We're being quite efficient with how we're spending now. 
Um, and I think it's the right thing for the business, quite frankly. We're in a really healthy place. Uh, we've got a long runway as a business where it, we've made the right choices. But um, when a whole team's new and very quickly you're having to reduce the size of the team, you're having to shift, fo fo shift the focus of the team, um, you know, that is when we talk about the need of having a culture that drives performance, I think that has really stood to us and some of the choices that we intentionally made early on is what has helped us navigate through this and to be able to continue delivering and keeping the team intact. We haven't seen any voluntary attrition throughout this whole period um, and we're seeing really positive signs of rep performance as well. That's impressive. Um, because also to, to, to circle back to something that you said earlier, like you, you had to build a team Um, but it wasn't really clear where to start. You had a team in San Francisco, all right? You had some engineering team in Paris, but then you have to make it happen in, in Dublin. So how did you guys try to find a way to navigate that that chaos, you know, things that you could, you know, get your hands on in terms of like finding a playbook or having the right conversations to be able to construct that team? Or was it just by actually doing it that you discovered, yeah? the best way to approach it. Yeah, we were in a unique position in that our our team in the US had made a lot of the hires before the leaders were hired in Dublin. So the team we have today, um, there's only one person I've hired. Everybody else was here uh, because the plan was when I started, we were going to be hiring more sales leaders in Dublin. We were going to be hiring more reps in Dublin. So um, we were getting good people where we could get them and figure we'd build in the rest. And then everything came to a, a slowdown. So we paused hiring, then we kind of restructured the team from there. And so the real challenge was, you know, how do you take a team that has been working remotely? Um, we had some of our team were reporting to people in San Francisco, some were reporting to someone in Paris, some were reporting to somebody in Chicago. The team weren't getting together. Like there was no community within Dublin. There was no physical office space. Um, the only time that team was getting together was when someone came to visit from the US. And so the people were there. The challenge then was how do you take these individual people and create a team that can learn from each other and who can really benefit from the knowledge of one another in order to lift the overall skill and capabilities of the entire group. So let's talk about that because I'm sure that this has a lot to do with the, uh, how do you call it, the zero regretted, uh, regretted attrition. I like, the, I like the term. It's probably because um, I, I speci specifically bumped on the regretted, but that just means that It's nobody that you wanted to see leave that also hasn't left. Is that is that what it means? Yeah, we haven't had voluntary attrition either. So so no nobody's okay. left on their own. We've had restructuring, as I've said, but um, of the team that's here, the, the team has chosen to stay with us, which has been a really nice thing. What do you guys do so differently or so well or so that actually worked for France? What can you share? Yeah, it's like the um, little bits of magic, right? It's hard. And, and I think when you talk about culture, it's one of the hardest things to make real. It's something that people tend to think about it as this thing that has happened, or you think about like the free meals and the ping pong tables, and like those are benefits and perks. But the culture is really how, how does it feel when you come in to do your job every day? Does your manager trust you? Do you feel like you're contributing to the overall business? Or do you feel connected to the business as a whole? Do you feel ownership of your own success? Um, and these are the things that it takes. So it's intentionality that it takes to build stuff like this, because I think if you're not thoughtful, you come in and you just start doing, but it, it takes some foundational groundwork to be able to think through what are the structures we're setting up that allow people to feel confident that we've got a game plan for their success. Um, how do we make sure they feel supported in the work that they're doing? How do they make sure we know that we're on their side, we're pushing them to be more successful? So um, getting into the how of that is the really hard part. But I think when people talk about culture, 
it just is assumed it's happened somewhere. And I think um, that's a mistake a lot of leaders make is not realizing it is their job to intentionally go bad. And there are lots of small decisions um, that add up to a consistent culture. I think, you know, trust is consistency over time. One of those things I've heard once and I've said it a million times. And, and as a leader, you're building trust. And as you build that stability, the team has a strong foundation on, foundation on which they can grow. Um, and then you're able to ask more of the team. You're able to push the team if that foundation is stable. So what are then the the elements that you are playing with to set up that structure? I think one of the big things, um, you know, being the first in as a leader is just figuring out how your personal values align with the company's values. And I'm very lucky in front. I was very lucky in LinkedIn in that um, the values of the organization are really aligned to how I work. So things like low ego and transparency. Huh. But then you also have the cultural element of how that's interpreted in the markets you're working in. So an example of this um, within LinkedIn, like open, honest, and constructive communication was one of the big kind of tenets that we talked about. Well, Irish communication is like the least direct form of communication. You, you don't you don't just say it, you'll kind of say around it oftentimes. And so what I would hear is people saying, well, they say open, honest, and constructive, but, but what that means is they want us to do this. Whereas in the US, you're like, this is how we operate. So I think understanding and, and taking the time to think through the cultural interpretation of how things are being interpreted and then how can you authentically live those values in a way that aligns with the company, yes, but is something that you can then kind of be the example of on an everyday basis. Being very aligned on the definitions. I think that specifically in the EMEA region where you have those different cultures, different languages, super, super important. That's a good one. And I've learned to communicate with folks who are from different cultures in this. Um, here's what I'm saying. What have you heard? Okay, this is what I've said. Now repeat it back to me. So in a very, um, not at all in a condescending way, but just understanding that everything will be interpreted through a cultural lens, that I mean, communication is a, a two-person sport. And so making sure that that what the intent of what you've said is what has been understood is really important. And so when you're taking the nuance of like a cultural element, which is something we feel and experience, how do you make sure that that's being um, interpreted the same way? So I think it takes a lot of kind of authenticity. And as a leader, you've got to make sure you're very clear with yourself on what are the values that are important to you and that you're very early on communicating that to your team. Just like you said, like culture is not a very tangible thing. So it's very hard for a lot of people to have like a same level of understanding of what culture means. Uh, I think that's, you know, to, to your same point of having the right definition for the same terms. To me also, culture is about having expectations on behavior. I don't know how you look at that. Is that also something that you would say, yeah, that's that's how I look at, at culture, like a certain level of expectation that is being set and defined? Yeah, and I think it's, it's the standard that you set as the organization. I think um, I talk a lot about um, empowerment and accountability as some of the core tenets of how I lead, lead a team. And I think what I like to see and when I've got kind of a sense that it's going well, is when the culture starts to take legs of, it, of its own. Um, I think when you are able to make people feel and give them the freedom to take ownership of their role. So as an example of this is I don't want to be on a call with a rep showing them how to sell over and over again. I want to teach them the framework. I want to give them feedback. I want to challenge them to think about what they're doing. I want to see them be successful. I want to see them fail and I want to coach them through the failure. But when you allow somebody the grace to learn, the success is theirs, the success isn't yours. And when you start to see the confidence build in a team, I think you know competence leads to competence. So you've got to make sure the team knows what they're doing, understand what the product is. How do we talk about this product? What problems does it solve? You know, the, the competence is important, 
But then the thoughtfulness of letting somebody own their own success allows them to take ownership. They can then teach other people. They feel proud of what they've done. And these are the ways you start to elevate that um, experience of how does that culture come to life and how do I feel that I'm a part of what's been created here? <laughs> can you maybe share a little bit more about giving someone indeed like responsibility over their own ownership? Like I feel that a lot of companies try to to do that, but I also feel like maybe there is a tendency of not really giving it fully, that ownership. Do you have like any good practices when it comes to that or have you seen maybe the the inverse, people that want to do it, but don't do it the right way. I don't know if there is anything. I think it is the scariest thing for a leader because you lose control of things a little bit and you have to trust. So I think kind of the first core principles for me, you know, you, you have to be able to trust a team. And I'll start by telling my team, look, like we're working in a place of trust. I trust you to be doing your job. I trust that you're working hard. If the trust gets broken, that's something we have to, to work on together. But I often have to challenge myself to remind myself that that is... Um, that's what I've said and it's what I mean and it's important to me. And so it's really hard if you see someone trying something, you're not quite sure if it's the right thing to be doing rather than saying, don't do that or I wouldn't do it that way. It's kind of going, well, help me understand like what is the thought process here? And by taking this angle, what are you trying to do? And I think it's hard when you've been a top seller. I'm going to go tangentially here to come back to this, but they say like I played basketball for a very long time. The best players are often the worst coaches because the players that are in incredibly good at what they do have never had to really think about how they get that good. And I think when you move into a coaching role, your job is to understand the mechanics of the game and to be able to understand the pieces that get to greatness. And so I think making that switch for a lot of leaders is hard, especially in go-to-market orgs where you've been a really good seller. It's really hard to sit back and allow people to fail in order to improve. But it's by giving them that space that they have the ability to actually be successful and actually feel the ownership of that um, and that's a really hard mentality shift to go through. Yeah, no, just like you say, it's it's a completely other set of skill sets at first. And indeed, you want people that can bring from a B to an A plus in terms of sales. You don't want the, the A sales that just takes it over. Oh, for sure. Hi, guys. Have you heard anything fascinating yet? If so, please share your learnings on LinkedIn. That way we understand better what you value. But at the same time, you're also providing value to your network. All right, let's get back to the interview. I'd also say another tactical piece of this that we often don't think about is um, the incentives that we set up for our teams and how those incentives drive behaviors. And I think um, understanding the way that reps think allows us to really set up incentives. One of the things I say all the time is that we just can't create situations where we encourage reps to lie to us. And it sounds very straightforward, but sales organizations do this all of the time. And I think we like to think that, you know, sales reps are going to be doing what's best for the business overall. But if we're paying them in such a way that what's best for the business and what's best for them kind of branch off from each other, we're going to create a situation where the behaviors that we're incentivizing, the culture we're creating is to say one thing, do another. Um, and, and I think being really thoughtful about those things as you're setting up teams as well are really important. Yeah. Do you have like an example of that? I think, I think you mentioned one in the preparation, so feel free to share it. There's a couple. I mean, a very simple one is, you know, I was working with a team where we were having a challenge with um, reps forecast accuracy. So our reps were selling, we were retaining numbers, we were doing fine, but our reps were not helping us really predict, like the predictability of the business was off. We weren't seeing great forecasting um, hygiene and discipline from the teams. So we made the decision to include forecast accuracy as part of the overall um, semi-annual review process. 
So that meant your scoring on your review was your delivery, but then also things like, you know, how accurate were you in your forecast? And what ended up happening is we would see reps at the end of the quarter going, Ooh, I could bring in this deal, but if I do that, then I'm going to be outside my window on forecast accuracy. I'm going to get dinged on my review. So I'd be better off just waiting until next week to close the deal, which is not what you want in a revenue work, but it was a very small incentive that drove a behavior that was creating the opposite thing of what you actually want to have happening within the business. That's interesting. But how do you try to avoid such such mistakes, actually? Because the the intention at the very beginning was good, was to actually, yeah, help the business as a consequence of it, but still it incentivized wrong behavior. Um, so how do you try to avoid for these? I think it's understanding, like great sales rep is like water going down a hill. It's going to find the fastest path. And I think the great sales rep will find the fastest path to money. People get into sales because they want to earn. Like you, you don't take a job where half of your income is variable based on your own ability to do something if you don't want to earn the money. And I think the larger our roles get in leadership, the easier it is to forget that the people doing the job have that sort of incentive mentality within them. So I think it takes a bit of um, just staying really realistic and thinking through maybe cynically about if I put this in place, what will happen? Another great example of this is we, um, another company that I worked with, the way that we compensated pilots completely changed behavior of the team in such a way that it wasn't what anybody expected, but we allowed for pilots to count as first year ARR. So it got the um, quota retirement as well as commission payout on a, on a you know, short-term pilot. And then the pilot renewal also counted within the same fiscal year. So rather than getting like 100% of what the deal value would be, the AE would be credited for about 150% of that deal value. That means that the actual new business going into the existing business team, so the, the revenue that's being handed over, is a little bit smaller than what you think it is because that new business number should be the number that moves into the um, relationship management and ongoing account management group. So that's a little bit off. The quotas for the new business team kept rising and rising because as the reps figured out they could double down on pilots and make 50% more money on everything you're doing, right? That was the way to sell. I actually, in that org, had someone working for me who was um, one of the top sellers in the company globally. And we talked about it. And he was like, here's the thing. I'm never selling a pilot to someone who's not going to renew a pilot. So the behavior that we'd actually created is rather than letting somebody trial the product and then purchase it, we were only selling them to people that we were pretty positive and get in a multi-year deal on the other side of it. And people that were iffy, we were just putting on 12-month contracts and moving them through. And so interesting. it makes sense from the rep's perspective, you realize how you're going to maximize your earnings. And you realize if you're stacking up the you know, multi-year deal kickers and you're stacking up the uh, revenue you can book and in in what you can retire in quota, obviously from a rep's perspective, that's where you make money. But what we didn't think about was the fact that it's going to have all these downstream consequences on you know how renewable are these 12-month contracts we're putting through um, and people who really actually should be trialing us before we commit to contracts um, are not getting the opportunity. So I, I think it's things like that where you kind of have to go, hang on, if I were selling, what would I do here? If I were trying to maximize cash, what would I do in this situation? And I think you have to challenge yourself to think that way and, and slow down and take that step. Oh, yeah. Super, super interesting. Super good example. Do you think it is also an idea to actually... I'm not going to say split test, but also have like a new compensation plan uh, that you want to test out or do you want to roll out, maybe test it out first with maybe like you say, like the, 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 the highest performers in the team, because they actually might, you know, be inventive, be creative with the model you would like to roll out. Is that maybe something that you would recommend or? I don't know that I would test it with them, but I would get their feedback because I think, especially with uh, sellers, 
everybody wants the fair opportunity to succeed. So if you have people on different compensation plans, you're going to get some sort of weird competition or some sort of weird feeling of like not having the same chance to earn. But I think if you're able to establish that trust, so I'm not asking you these questions to understand what you, you know, what could go wrong. I'm kind of asking to help you get a new perspective. And if you can sit down and have that conversation and your rep trusts you enough to be able to be honest with you, it allows you to get to a place where you can get that perspective without having to, you know, get your finance team to agree to a certain set of, you know, comp plans and those sorts of things without being sure it's what you want to roll out. Yeah, I, th I think that would be like a good, uh, a good thing indeed to just have that conversation with them, uh, but not split the team for that. I can also imagine that the role of the leader when you're trying to build like a high performance culture, like you did at front is like super, super important. So I think you already kind of touched on it a little bit, but can you explain like how intentional were you about creating and preserving that culture? Very intentional. I think this goes back to, um, you know, the early part of my career was all around employee engagement and around being, you know, on the HR side of building a culture. And you're kind of on that side of the business, you're coaching leaders on how to do it. And now I am the leader, right? So you're, you're kind of going, how do you, you know, how do you apply those lessons you've learned over a career to be thought about how you come into a team? From the jump, I kind of talk to my team about what they can expect out of me and what I expect out of them. I operate in this mantra, you know, there should be no surprises. I think people want to be able to come into work and understand what they need to do in order to be successful. And they want to know how they're being measured. They want to know what's expected of them so that they have a chance to succeed. And if you're always moving that goalpost, it's really hard for them to um, optimize for what you need them to do. So I think one of the things I'll say all the time is you've got to slow down to go fast. You've got to really slow down and think about if I take this set of actions, what will happen? And I think as a leader, thinking you know a quarter or two ahead of where you are, thinking through what are the habits I want my team to build now so that you're able to, again, set those foundations that you're able to accelerate when it's time. Like what you said, that's really thinking, what are the habits that my team should actually try to build? Hi guys, on May 16, 2024, we are hosting the We Are Sales Conference. Our ambition is to make this event Europe's best and largest conference on sales leadership, where we learn, discover, and debate cutting edge practices by leaders who have been there, done that. Again, May 16, 2024, Make sure to block the date in your calendar. All right, let's go back. Can you go a little bit deeper on that? Like, what are the habits? What what exactly are the habits that you're trying to to look in your team? Yeah, like from a revenue side, you know, I think we're we are relatively new in Europe and we're figuring out how to sell here. So what I want is a curiosity. I want people giving feedback on decisions we're making. I want people sharing what they're seeing in the market. So I think creating a scenario wherein it is easy and regular that we're sharing those sorts of, of um, insights is really important. And so being thoughtful about how do you then structure a team meeting as an example, so that you have space on a regular basis, you're asking those questions on a regular basis, um, you're celebrating people who share difficult feedback to share. Um, I think those are the sorts of things that can reinforce. It's not a one-time thing. It's not an email saying, what do you think about this decision we've made? It's how do we enable the conversation? And as a leader, are you willing to hear someone tell you that you've been wrong and you made a wrong decision? And how do you take that, listen to it, ask the questions to understand that, and then implement changes based on that? Look, I, I like that. Um, and I also asked that question because again, to, to come back to my definition of culture, like expectation of behavior, I think that creating those habits is also somehow, you know, coming back to that point of, of creating an expectation of behavior. And, and also the, because I also think it was funny to talk about compensation and remuneration. Um, 
because it's there it's about incentivizing behavior to some extent we could also say it's an expectation that you're trying to set up and add into that as well like there are um pretty core things to a revenue team so like outbound prospecting as an example where when we talk about behaviors we expect like i need my team to be prospecting you know regardless of leads coming in um and we've seen significant increase in like rep productivity on the outbound prospecting side and the outbound generated pipeline is increasing quarter on quarter from the team in Europe. But it's because I think we're kind of encouraging the team to take that ownership and to think about, you know, here's the book we built. Like, where are you finding honeypots in that book? Where can you expand a little bit? Where you can take a tangential step to find more opportunity? Um, but then we're also taking the team's feedback on, I need more of this content, or this is the question I keep getting. How do we, how do we make sure that we're able to speak to this thing? And so we can use that feedback effectively. And I think we talked earlier about how do you make sure the team feels ownership? It's when they raise something, it's taking it seriously and, and being able to discuss that with them or tell them why it's something you're not going to take seriously or you're not going to action, but valuing those inputs so that then as we start to see more success, they know they were a part of building that. And I think that's the piece that gets people kind of sticking around. How do you actually test if you have like a solid good culture in place? Uh, I know that you also came up with like uh, actually a couple of metrics. Maybe it's also worth mentioning them. Uh, but also, is that how do you kind of evaluate if we have like a strong, solid culture? The most important thing and the hardest thing to measure. I think it's both of those things at the same time. We do um, an employee voice survey on a quarterly basis. And what we see out of Dublin as a whole. So, you know, I have direct reports here. And we also, we joke, I have a lot of people I step manage here. So people whose direct managers are in other offices, but the day-to-day -day of working in Dublin is kind of reliant on, on myself and, and Leisha and the way we've set up the culture there. So what we see pretty regularly um, is that questions around, I feel like I belong at the company, I feel like I belong at my team are generally higher than the overall company average. Um, questions around feeling connected to the mission of the company are generally above the company average. And so I think these sorts of measures are really helpful in understanding that um, the way people are feeling about their connectivity, their ability to, to create impact um, is is going in the right direction and, and is a positive marker of their feeling of, of connectedness to the business overall. Um, we're also seeing in Europe um, overall increase in ARR. Um, so the deals are getting bigger. Um, of the 10 largest deals we've sold in Europe by ARR, um, the two highest are, have come out of Dublin in, in the last um, 12 months, and seven of those 10 are, are out of Dublin as well. So we did have a team selling. Now, it's hard to attribute that all to culture, right? Because we've evolved as a team. We've, we've done a lot of kind of work as well, but we are seeing these positive pieces where you get those wins and it kind of all culminates together between the skill building and the culture and um, you know defining ICPs and all these pieces that play together. But I think the wins, um, you chalk up to the culture for sure. Mm -hmm. No, that, that definitely plays, uh, I mean, it all plays together, that's for sure. Um, how do you try to also kind of preserve the culture? Meaning that if someone does something that, you know, is not really according to the culture, or if you see something that you wouldn't actually want to see, like, how do you try to, yeah, make sure that you ping-pong to that? I think you have to talk about it. I think one of the um, leadership things that I've heard over my career that has really stuck with me. Uh, LinkedIn, we talked a lot about compassionate leadership and really determining like what is sympathy, empathy, and compassion, and they're very different things. So the analogy that, that we used to talk about it is if you're walking down the street, someone's got a giant rock stuck on their leg, they can't move. If you're being sympathetic, you're going to sit next to them and tell them you're so sorry this has happened, this is such a terrible thing. If you're being empathetic, you'll lay down and go, oh my gosh, I can imagine how much that would hurt. 
you're being compassionate, you'll probably walk right past, get a tool to get the rock off of their leg. So it, it looks like the colder option, but it actually solves the problem. So I think when you think about compassionate leadership, being able to address those challenges head on, when something's happening that is counter to the culture you're trying to build, talking to that person, it's kind of understanding what's happening in that behavior, it's sharing the observation you're having. I think those are oftentimes the most uncomfortable conversations to have as a leader, but also the most impactful because when your culture is good, when people want to be a part of the community you've built, um, no one wants to break that. So it, oftentimes it's not an intentional thing. And so pointing that out to people helps them to um, learn, helps them to grow, but then also can correct the problem that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Have you had like um, difficult conversations like that? Can you bring one of the conversation that really stood out, like that you can still remember as of today and that kind of impacted also your leadership onwards? Yeah, absolutely. And I think earlier in my career, there was somebody on my team, we ended up terminating his employment. He was a really great guy. He has the huge passions outside of work that were really important. Um, he hadn't been in the tech space long. He wasn't learning the job very quickly. There were some behaviors that were kind of uncomfortable. It just, the, it wasn't working. I had the conversations with him. Um, we put him on a behavioral plan. Like it was, it was a, in my mind, I had communicated clearly what was coming. And then when we moved to termination, he was shocked that it didn't happen. Like he was absolutely surprised. And I was surprised that he was surprised. And it was the worst feeling I think I've ever had as a leader. I think ultimately it was the right decision for the team. I think it was the compassionate choice for him. I think he's off doing things where he's much more successful now. But that lesson for me was really around, you know, going back to the how clearly are we communicating and is, is what I am intending to communicate is what's being received by the person. And so having those difficult conversations and saying, look, if this isn't corrected, your job is at risk. And I think as uncomfortable as it is to say that, you owe that to people so that you are not walking them into big surprises. And I think if you're able to have these difficult conversations and you're able to do them equitably, it makes it a lot easier when you've got to performance manage people, when you've got to um, you know move people out of the business. If people understand that, that everyone's been treated fairly through that process, there it's, it's less of a shock for the rest of the team as well. How much can you actually also shape culture through processes? Because that I would also think, you know, is linked. I mean, nowadays you have like the PIP, right? The performance Improvement Plan to actually try to make clear that, you know, we are expecting some types of actions, behaviors, performance as a consequence of that. If not, then maybe, you know, maybe this is not the place for you. Uh, and so that with that, I think you can, I mean, erase that element of surprising. Is that then something that actually, yeah, could indeed help with culture? And could you try to look at processes as a way to shape culture in, in so many different facets? 100%. And I think um, your performance management is a great example of this. And I, I've got a lot of friends working at different companies, right? So there's a there's a, a friend of mine who's a revenue leader in another organization, and they've rolled out um, a process by which they're kind of putting the bottom certain percentage of performers on pips on a quarterly basis. And that has eroded the trust in a crazy way with the team because they're very unclear on what's expected of them to stay out of pip territory. So we're working on this now um, in front is really defining what are the thresholds where we're having a performance conversation, what are the thresholds where you're kind of moving into PIP territory? And I think having that um, open and available so that reps understand that they're knowing, you know, if, if you're coming in before, you know, under 50% a quarter, you know that you're going into a performance management conversation, but it doesn't feel like it's unfair. Like you, you know why it's happening and you know that that is the consequence. And so it makes it a lot easier to, as a leader to be able to say, look, here's the threshold. We have to beat that. I want to help you beat that. 
Um, it lets you be able to kind of advocate for your team. It lets you be able to coach your team. It gives you a goal to work towards. It's a much healthier way than having this kind of nebulous, if you're not good enough, then you're going to be out of pit. And that's a really hard thing to manage too. And it's a really hard thing for a rep to feel secure within. If you would have to describe your company culture or really the culture that you are trying to build at Front, maybe you have built also at LinkedIn, like how would you describe it? For me, it's a culture of ownership. Front is, um, we're a startup company in a lot of ways and especially in Europe, we're figuring things out. Things change regularly. There's a bit of um, trial and error going on in a lot of different aspects. And so for me, the team that I need to be successful here is a team who enjoys a challenge, who is not afraid to speak up, who could think critically, you know, who's, who's able to kind of look at a problem and think about it from different angles, and who enjoys the challenge of building towards success. So for me, that comes through, and I think I mentioned this earlier, and, you know, empowerment and accountability. So are you empowering a team to feel ownership? And are they accountable to the metrics you need them to be accountable to, to make the team successful? How important is it to actually test for those in recruitment? in the hiring process. Yeah, I think designing a hiring process is the most, I mean, this is this was the, the core of the early part of my career, but thinking about what are you trying to test for and designing an interview process that gives you ways in which you can test for those skills. I think it's really easy, especially in sales. Like salespeople and recruiters are the hardest people to interview because the whole job is like making people believe something and buy off of you, right? Like that's the whole gig. And if anyone's half good at that, it's really easy to look really good in an easy interview. But being thoughtful about, um, as an example, we just ran a process um, hiring in, in Dublin. And so we were looking for sales development reps. And we were thinking about, you know, what is important in this role? So a lot of their communication with prospects is written. And I wanted to make sure that written communication skills were very clear, um, very succinct, very direct. They're doing qualification calls. So how do we test, and these are entry-level candidates, how do we test they have those skills, even though they may not have done the job before? For me, I was looking for these kind of cultural elements on can you speak to power? So are you able to challenge people in positions of authority, which for me is important because I need a lot of eyes thinking about fixing the problems. Don't need people that are just yes men that'll say, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then, but no, that is actually a mess. We're looking for people that can work in a team because we've built something special. I want people that can, you know, contribute to that. People who are interested in learning, interested in being challenged. So we designed a process, which in the first step was a written exercise that you could, you know, the questions were easy enough to answer kind of a basic understanding of the job. But then what we were really looking for is how strong is the written communication. Step two was a mock call, but we gave people the answers. We kind of gave them the framework we wanted them to use. We gave them things to listen to, to get ready for it. So the, so the test was, you know, can you prepare for this? And are you able to follow a structure to lead a call? And then we add a layer where we have candidates reflect back on the call they had. So rather than just running a qualification call, you're looking for things like, you know, what do you think are the biggest risks to the business that you just spoke to? You know, where do you think the biggest challenges would be if they don't fix this problem? What you know about our company, how do you think we could help? So you're testing the critical thinking skills that come along with that. You're not just going to tick the box, they can do a call call. And then the in-person interview, we just designed a series of questions to test around these skills and to kind of ask people for examples of how they've done this in the past. Could have been, you know, when you're caddying at a golf club or it could have been when you were in a similar role somewhere else. But um, thinking about, you know, not just has this person done the job before, therefore they'd be good at this job, but like, what are the important elements to me and how do you put those together to design a process that you really test for those things in a consistent way? Hi guys, I quickly want to let you know that we are doubling down on this podcast and by so doing, we are looking for the better revenue stories out there. So if you like what you hear, please give it a like or a follow. It is a simple click on a button, but that click would mean the world to us. All right, 
let's go back. I just want to circle back to what you said also earlier uh, when you described the culture. You mentioned a lot of things, um, but you also mentioned like empowering and accountability. Obviously, I would agree like super important, but again, like something we mentioned earlier, like I think a lot of companies want to have that in place, want to have empowered employees, I mean, team members uh, that all that are also accountable. You already touched on the empowering. Like you said earlier, sometimes you want to say something or you think something differently, but you will have to trust a person. So you, you have to take distance <laughs> off of the matter. Uh, but about that accountability, like, can you describe that a little bit more? Like, what does that mean? How, yeah, is accountability part of the culture at front? So I think it goes back to not, not moving the goalposts for people. So what do you expect them to get done? And this, again, it all builds on itself, right? We're thinking about what are the KPIs that are important? And are those KPIs aligned to the behaviors you actually want to drive? So an example is if you say, you know, I need you doing 100 outbound activities a week. Well, anybody can log 100 outbound activities a week, but are we really getting the results out of that? So, so what are the things you want to be measuring? What are the KPIs? What are the measures? What are the things you're celebrating? That if people do those things regularly, it will put them on the path to success. And being thoughtful about how do we measure those? How do we question those? Um, and what are the things that are actually, you know, the inputs they can control that would lead to the outputs that we want as a business. And then being consistent. And if you say, you know, I'm looking for outbound pipeline builds on a weekly basis. I want you covering, you know, your entire book of business should, should have some sort of contact on it within each quarter making sure that you're following up on that. So you can't say it once and expect it to happen, but like, how are you reporting on that in weekly team meetings? How are you reporting on that at the end of the quarter? How are you celebrating people that have done it really well? Um, how are you asking for people's input on why it's a challenge to get there, but making sure the conversation is consistent so that it's not something that you've said once and then we can just ignore that, it'll go away. We'll focus on something we want to focus on. Yeah, I think that's just a, a standard thing when it comes to culture, I think repetition, you cannot, ever repeat something enough thinking so uh, I think so for sure that's uh, that's an important one I would also think that in sales teams where you have that drive that competitiveness inside the team it's not always easy to create like a culture of transparency where everybody can share his win and losses with one another so how do you try to to make that happen you've got to set up systems where one person's success does not lead to failure for another person and it's being really thoughtful about things. How do you route leads? How do you route opportunities that are coming in? How do you ensure that everybody has an equitable chance at being successful? Um, how are you transparent about that with the team so that, that they have a chance to question it if they don't agree with it, but they also understand, you know, it's always going to be a little bit of, of luck of the draw. Um, but if you're consistent with the opportunity for people to be successful, um, you're very careful about being consistent about what you celebrate. So you don't want to say, you know, great job, Dylan, you're so good at this. And by highlighting one person, if there's a lot of stuff they're doing, you're not seeing, you're also celebrating all the stuff that is unseen. And so being really thoughtful and direct about great job with this specific thing. I really like how you did that. Um, you're able to really be consistent and that allows for the team to understand like the rules of play. Um, what are the things that, that leadership is looking for and therefore what should they be working on to kind of raise together the bar of how the team works. What do you think that salespeople actually want to have from the team, from the leader? Is it somehow recognition? 
Is it just that they want to be high performers? Is it going to be so many different things at the same time? Is it different for everyone? It's different for everyone. I think um, one of the tactical steps I take when I start working with a new team or a new group is I'll have when I'm early days. So before I've done anything, before I've made any decisions, before I've applied anything to the team, I'll take about an hour with everybody and go for a walk um, and just talk about what motivates them. Who is the best manager they've had? Who have they enjoyed working for the most? Is recognition important to them? I mean, really understanding each individual is a little bit different. And then you can be thoughtful about how you apply that knowledge. So I've had people work for me that like, you know, sending that email when they hit their quarter is like the most important thing to them. I had one rep who was like, List the deal is going to sign at like two o'clock today. So like by two fifty, I've written that here are the bullet points. If you could get it out before lunchtime, that'd be great. You're like, it's insane to me. It's not how I work, but it's what's important to them. And there are other ones who are more interested in making sure senior leadership knows what they're doing. And so so putting them on projects or giving them these chances um, to stretch into assignments is more important. Other people are just super coin operated and want to be left alone to make money. And so understanding um, what are the the things that really intrinsically motivate somebody is important. And then thinking through, you know, how do you bring that to life for them in a way that is important to them? I like that. I 100% like that. Do you think that uh, everyone has like that level of self-awareness though? Is it clear for everyone what they want or what they like? No, but you've got to ask good questions to get a sense of it. And pay attention when you try stuff. So if, if you forget to send somebody's quote across or email and they're mad at you, like you know what happened, then you know next time, you know, that's not something I can forget to do that actually matters to them more than they thought they did. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. So... Maybe, can you share like, um, you know, your biggest learning so far? Uh, I mean, I, th I think you have been like at the front for about two years now uh, in that new role where you have to roll that new team from the from scratch uh, in the middle of that economic crisis, if I can say it like that. Like what, for, where for you, like the biggest learnings? I think if I were doing it again, there's a couple things we would have done differently. I think um, it would have made it easier for us if we'd moved somebody over from the U.S. early on. So I think having a frontline manager or having like a senior rep, we eventually did move someone over, but the team had been here kind of without that for a while. I think I was very lucky in this case in that I had worked with some of the senior leaders at front previously. And so I had that network already in place. Um, if I didn't have that, I think we would have been much more disconnected from the team overall. So I think having somebody who understands more of the kind of global culture of, of the company, who understands um, very tactically who to reach out to when something breaks, like who do you get in touch with when something isn't working properly? Those are the hard things to do that can really frustrate people that you wouldn't think about if you're in a headquarters location. The other thing is getting senior leadership over more frequently and more consistently with the team. And I think being thoughtful about those visits um, and creating opportunities for connections and not just doing, you know, we're working out of the same office and we're doing a, an hour long asking anything, but setting up like, and our CEO came over recently, she's a ping pong fanatic. So we did a happy hour to ping pong thing. She was just destroying the whole team, <laughs> but it was a shared experience that they had, which is a much more comfortable thing to do than to kind of sit around and, and talk about business. And that makes it a lot easier than to have those conversations. So I think If I were in a position again where I was kind of first leader into a new location, those are the two things, being thoughtful about a landing team and then also making sure that we're very, very intentional about um, senior leadership connection early days. That's interesting because um, from my understanding, like the, the sales team in Dublin, do they come from the U.S. as well then? Or is there a part from the U.S.? Or what do you mean with bringing someone from the U.S. to uh, to Dublin so, office? Um, yeah, our team today, we have one person, not on my uh, direct team, but she's on a different team based in Dublin who has been with the company for about four years. Okay. And so she relocated to Dublin um, a couple months after I joined the company. So that was a really big help. 
But I think if I were starting from scratch, I'd be looking for a frontline manager or a seller who we could bring over, who'll be part of the team from the jump. Um, so that you have, you know, you look at, I talk a lot about change levers that you're pulling. I think it's a hard thing to ask somebody to sell a new product um, in a new market, right? So if, if nobody knows the product, if somebody on the team understands the product, we can teach them the market. But if you're trying to kind of learn a bunch of things at the same time, it's really hard. So understanding the market's fine, not knowing the product's really hard. If you can get those skills together and then, you know, do the work of building a team that can learn from one another, it really helps to, I think, accelerate the learning curve of the yeah, for sure. overall. That, that would make sense. So what is, what is for you now, like the, the biggest challenge in all this? You know, we, um, it's exciting stuff we have going on now. I think as a startup, we're always experimenting with new go-to-market tactics. We've got some um, really interesting kind of things we're piloting in this next quarter. Um, we're also bringing on a marketing agency for Europe specifically. Our marketing team is run out of the U.S. and we're getting a lot more kind of localized in how we're thinking about go-to-market in Europe. So I think um, what I'm enjoying right now is we've done the hard work of building the culture. That flywheel is kind of working and the, the team's taking it on um, kind of on their own. And so things are happening that I'm not having to really be involved with, but we've, we've done the foundational work. And now as we're rolling out these um, kind of go-to-market trials and pilots, we're bringing in kind of new marketing focus. We're asking the team to do new stuff. It's pretty exciting that we're in a place where the team is um, receptive to all of that. I think we're, I'm quite confident and hopeful that we see a huge acceleration in our business after this quarter, given all the kind of the work we put in and, and the big steps we're taking right now. Let's go. I hope to see that as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, we are unfortunately reaching the end of uh, of this interview. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, for coming on the show, for sharing your experience, your knowledge. Uh, super, super interesting stuff. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, some cultural element that we could uh, we can all learn and, and embrace for sure. Um, is there a way that you would like to use this platform for? Maybe you want to do a call to action for front, for yourself, uh, anything you want to use this platform for? Yeah, I think um, we are always networking and talking to folks. We're not hiring right now in Dublin, but we will be um, hopefully soon enough. I think also, you know, I'm always looking to connect with other sales leaders who have done this um, international journey and have kind of played the role of a voice of Europe to other other folks. So I think um, for us right now, we're um, focused on selling, focused on kind of um, working with our core ICP and, and really building the skills and confidence of the team and making sure we're being thoughtful about taking in all the learnings we can to make sure we're doing this in the most effective way. Awesome. So it's Emily Ponder and probably on LinkedIn will be the best way to connect. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Emily, once again, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best with Front. Thanks, Dylan. So nice to talk with you. Take care. That's it. We've once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next week with a fresh new episode.